In the news of rising sea levels, coral bleaching, and the burning of forests, there is a tendency to fall into an everlasting state of learned helplessness. But through stories of culture, tradition, and community, we are able to relearn the ancient practices that brought the sustainability we once knew. Hi, everyone. You are now listening to Real Talk. I'm your host, John or Nikki. And for this week, we have on the very knowledgeable, passionate, and influential Aisha Rashid on the podcast to dive deep into these stories of tradition and culture. She is a former president of the Model United Nations chapter, a technical editor for the Concept Collective, sustainability curriculum development and educator in training, and is pursuing marine biology and American indigenous studies at the University of Washington. But in this episode, we actually specifically address a lot of the things you don't hear about climate change when you hear about climate change. Usually it's about the rising temperatures. It's about all the ways that we're doomed and all the ways that there's nothing we can do and people are angry. And Aisha takes a really good spin on it and she is able to share a lot of the stories that she knows about the involvement of cultural practices and how storytelling in itself is the most powerful medium for change. It's the most powerful medium for connection and communication. And so we take it that next step where we look into how climate change in itself has actually been addressed in society and how we can do better and how we can share more information and connect better with others and make that small scale impact when we might think that that's not possible. So there's a lot of stories that Aisha is able to share. And we also give methods for self-help because eco-anxiety is also very real. And that's just overall anxiousness from hearing and processing all of the information that we see on social media. And so with all these topics together, we really just dive into climate change almost as a lifestyle and that we don't look at the biological factors as much, but we look into the social, political, and economic implications as well. And so it was an episode I feel like really resonated with me because it gave me a newfound sense of hope. And I really hope that you guys can get the same as well. And last thing, if you love the episode, feel free to drop a five-star review. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, and you can leave a written review as well. You can't do these on Spotify, but you can do them on Apple Podcasts. I will also be dropping this on YouTube so you can see the visuals. And I also have an Instagram account. Uh, it's called Real Talk, period, with John or Nikki. So I also post some of the visuals there, and there's little comments you can put down there as well. So feel free to give that a follow as well. But just thank you guys so much for being here. It's getting towards the end of the season two, and I'm just really, really grateful for everyone that continues to support and show all the love you have shown. So just thank you again. And now to the episode. Hi, everyone. Today we have Aisha Rashid on the podcast. How are you doing, Aisha? Hello, hello. I'm so happy to be here and excited for our conversation today, John. Yeah, this has been way too long of a wait. We like recorded one last year when I started just doing a lot of them just randomly in like the spring quarter. Yep. The dorm. Yeah, sweet dorm. I know. That that tapestry is like on the other side of this because I mean, I can't make that work with the way the wall, I don't even understand, but like the whole closet, I wish I could have like a background like that, but I just don't. Um, But yeah, that was perfect. And I've been waiting to get an episode with you. And I feel like this is like the perfect opportunity 
We have such a good topic today. This is like what you live and breathe for. Aisha literally knows so much about this. So I'm so excited for y'all to hear what she has to say. But first, Aisha, would you like to give a little bit of background on yourself just to the people that might not know you? Like, what would they want to know about you? Yeah. Um, well, my name is Aisha. I'm also a second year at UW with John. Um, we actually met because we lived on an island together fall quarter of last year, which was pretty amazing. Um, and... I'm from Northern California, so West Coast, best coast, always represent. And yeah, I've just been passionate about climate change since as long as I remember, because I think our generation has been a generation where it's something we grew up with. And that has been super interesting in going into college with that perspective, because I feel like we're the first first generation that's coming in with our entire upbringing focused on this one topic. Yeah, I think that perfect, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I think that perfectly brings about our question, just how do you think our society has done in explaining climate change to just like the general public? Because I feel like even at home, the people I talk to, there's just like different understandings of what climate change means. And honestly, even to me, like I have a decent understanding and I make this really pointless reference. I'm like, okay, if you have 2.5 children on average in your family, it's it's sustainable. Like there's like little facts I know, but honestly, my understanding of climate change is a bit skewed. And I just want to hear what your idea of it is and how you think society has done in explaining that. Yeah. A couple things I missed in my background. I'm a marine biology major, um, and that has been really exciting. In addition to, I'm an American Indian studies minor. Um, so coupling science and humanities has been really exciting. Um, and so regarding societies, I think we in America are seeing how well we explain climate change. And I think we're seeing that we did not do a good job. And I think part of the big pushback and reason we aren't seeing action against climate change is because we've done a poor job of explaining how we've come to the conclusions that we have. So scientists have been telling us for decades that we are going to be facing this issue, we're going to be facing this crisis, but it hasn't been told to people in a way that's digestible, in a way that they would be able to see how the observations would were made and come to the conclusion themselves by looking at the data or looking at what experiment was performed. I think today we people often forget that science is looking at a set of observations and coming to a conclusion. And it's not some far off, you know, you're in a lab coming up with these new theories and it's just magically appearing out of nowhere. No, science is simply asking a question and finding an answer. And I think just on that misunderstanding, we have a huge gap in realizing that I'm going off on a tangent, but I think people are slowly starting to realize that climate change is impacting them regardless of political party, because we're at a point in time where we can kind of see the impacts in the headlines that we're reading in our simple observations of the weather and patterns that are coming up around us. I was reading, um, this, it was a blog post of some kind. And this woman had said, my conservative aunt has started to believe climate change because she'll look out her window and over time she has noticed more armadillos. She's seeing the desertification of her own backyard and things like that, I feel like are speaking to people and they're starting to understand, oh, I, I see what the scientists mean now. And so I think that's a super interesting development 
And I think we're heading towards a path where climate change is becoming a two-party issue, which I'm very happy about. But I think the action that needs to be taken must be demanded from all of us. And it has to do with the connectivity of us in the ecosystem. Um, and so, yeah, I guess short answer is, I don't think we did a good job of explaining that climate change is simply ecosystems around us degrading. I don't think we did a good job of simplifying climate change or telling it through stories or telling it in a way that doesn't just scare people. I think, I mean, there's two points in particular that I really loved. The one point is so simplifying it. And the one story was like someone saw like certain animals outside behaving differently, or you see like the sky, different color, like you're seeing these fires or, oh, you're making your own observations. Exactly. It's like, I agree with you that stories are such a powerful medium of communication that when we're trying to educate people and like, like the question we asked, how is climate change as like a definition, as a problem, how is that being communicated to the overall public? Like finding a way through that direct interaction, that direct experience that makes you believe in it. And mm-hmm. yes, there's a lot of propaganda. There's a lot on both sides. And that's why I liked your point with like that. It needs to come back to being a bipartisan issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and it used to be bipartisan, which is very interesting in like the fifties and sixties, but with certain oil companies needing to keep legislation in certain areas and keep doing what they're doing to reap the benefits. Um, there's just more and more divide. And I definitely agree that, yeah, there needs to be more bipartisan work to be done on top of just being able to connect with people and focus on the community aspect because people need to figure out how they can trust a certain source or how they can actually believe what's being said. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many people that like don't agree with what I believe in with um, how oceans are just acidifying, right? The Great Barrier Reef, I think over 70% of it is gone already by like, yeah, 2017, 2018. I I think it's even higher now, which is just really, really sad. And a lot of people just don't believe that. And if I say that, it's because of the the certain news that's being fed to them to their own political views. So yeah, there needs to be like a big switch from the political um, spectrum to just everyone agreeing and everyone working through it in a bipartisan lens. Yeah. And I think it's so easy. Like even when I was growing up, there was a moment that clicked. There was a specific story that somebody explained to me as I was as it was being applied in the field. And that I felt it in my head. It was like a a, a light bulb moment. Um, And I'll tell that story in a second. But until you get that connection, it is very hard to understand how things can be done for climate change. And those stories really changed the game. And so I was working in the field in Kauai for my biotech class. I was a senior lab technician for my biotech um, course in my high school. And we had gotten a research grant to work in Kauai. We were doing some genetic uh, plant studies. And we volunteered at this garden and preserve, Limahumi Garden and Preserve. And Kauai had actually been struck by really, really bad flooding. And so we were working there to help um, restore the ecosystem. And so she, our leader, her name was Sari. She worked at the garden and she was taking us in and showing us around and working with us. Um, She was explaining how this one invasive plant, this octopus tree had come and changed the ecosystem entirely. So this plant came in for landscaping, for people's houses and backyards and whatnot. 
Um, and it just totally took over the island. Um, this plant, it's, it prevents the ground layer of growth from growing and it produces a lot of leaf litter. So that leaf litter also uh, smothers any plants trying to grow. They can't get sunlight. It causes, it changes the layered system of the rainforest. So this one, this one tree, this octopus tree is preventing, is changing the way nutrient cycling is happening. So when the flooding happened, instead of a majority of the water being soaked into the ground, because of the lack of bottom layer plants, all the water just ran off. So when the flooding hit, it hit harder, especially because this invasive plant had came and changed the ecosystem. So that impacted the people more, that impacted the lands more. It tore down a piece of the highway. And so you're seeing how if you do fight against this invasive species by outplanting native species, you are subsequently creating a more, um, it's a more resilient ecosystem to the damages that climate change is proposing. So I think that's what I'm most, most passionate about is building up our resilience so that the impacts of climate change that we feel, we, we are taking them at, as the best we can. We are giving ourselves the best chance of still flourishing while the changing environments are still occurring around us. And so when she was telling me how the nutrient cycling changed, the water runoff, it's taken off this highway, then this nutrient-rich water runs off into the ocean. Then you have a toxic algal bloom. There's an hmm. up, up source of nutrients, and it's just causing huge problems in so many aspects of the environment. And so there's an indigenous group that on this particular mountain, it was called the Mountain Makana, that performed a ceremony. And so they were, they essentially lost the ceremony because the tree that they used, they, I don't want to simplify the ceremony, but, so I'm not going to go into explaining it, but essentially the tree that they depended on for the ceremony was so endangered, so they couldn't use it. The leaf litter produced causes a fire hazard. So you have so many aspects that are resulting in cultural loss as well. The cultural, the native winds died down. So even if they wanted to perform the ceremony, everything is altered. And so in this community, what Sari was telling me about was when you protect cultural practices. So this practice was outlawed as a result of colonialism. But if, if you had kept that, maybe there would be less octopus plant octopus tree there would be less leaf litter there would be less damaging flooding so they're all connected um the ecosystem the oceans and the people and i think thinking about the people is a big part that is often forgotten or not included in scientific discussions when you're talking about oh we have this issue this issue this issue well how is that going to be applied to a group of people to a society how can we make policy that includes people in it. And what I mean by that is very important yeah. to yeah, include people when you're thinking about science. Well, that story was so beautiful. And like, I just the way you tied it back and like you said it up, like this, the way you explain it, like that's a way to pass certain like legislation. That's a way to connect with people like a video of that on like YouTube or yeah. TikTok. And like, 
And, you know, um, so I told this story. I took an environmental economics class at Stanford and I told this story. And when I, every time I tell this story, I get kind of lost in it. I'm picturing it and I just get so I forget where I am when I'm telling that story, which is a good feeling. And I, I finished and I kind of looked around, forgot where I was. And everyone was like so in shock how how beautifully that connects everything. And the professor looked at me and he was like, please, like, can you send me an article about that? I would love to learn more. And of course, I go to find something that discusses this. And there's not, nothing written on it. Literally, so many of these, these storytelling um, stories that connect these various aspects are not written in scientific papers. And there's stories around the world that are missing. Um, and I think... Especially I've noticed in the United States, right, you have this huge gap and this huge lack of indigenous perspectives in science. And I think that is part of the, the one of the hugest reasons I chose to be an AIS minor and why it's felt so important to educate myself on that aspect. But yeah, there was no article or anything written about it. And it's just something that makes climate change so clear or this this particular issue so clear and understandable for any person yeah i think that shows like the obvious and the really important disconnect between just people that want to learn and not being able to even access anything like how did you even learn about all this it was just because we were on that field trip oh exactly so yeah you had to be like i away. had to be there to learn it yeah <laughs> so that takes money that takes the opportunity like that exactly. takes even your passion to even do like that and to reach out and so it's like that just shows for someone who's as, as passionate as you, it takes a lot of effort even just to learn like mm-hmm. the stories that really can bring us all together and bring more education and bring more awareness. And obviously that story just like shows how important those cultural traditions actually are. And I think that's so inspiring and it like gives you a different sense of hope because there is a lot of like negative statistics that go around and it's really easy to believe that, like, yes. you can't do Eco anything anxiety. about it. Oh. Eco-anxiety is very real. It is. And, like, that's, like, what you see. Like, you're just fed that over and over again. But we need Aisha Rashid to have, like, a TED Talk and have, have that blow up. And that would help. I think yeah. that would help a little bit. <laughs> An Aisha by the Ocean episode. True. Yeah, the Aisha by the Ocean. She actually has an Instagram Aisha by the ocean that flows too. Check That's, it out. <laughs> check it out. A little, little shout out for Aisha. But yeah, for the average person, like you said that you get involved in your own ways. And I mean, you have this beautiful story, but other people that might have just learned this or who are listening, they want to get involved as well. Mm-hmm. And it can seem more difficult to do such big scale things when we don't realize that there's other small scale opportunities. So could you share some things that you've done that has like limited your own impact on the world and climate change and how other people can help too? Yeah, I think it's firstly very important. I do want to touch on eco-anxiety in, before I tell you how to, how to, what to do, but it's very, very scary what is going on and it's very heavy stuff. But I do think I have hope and I'm studying the field, right? So I'm getting the worst of the information. I'm listening and learning about all the struggles we're facing every day. But 
I honestly believe in the human race and our capabilities of problem solving. This is a huge problem at that we're facing, but I think we 100% have the capabilities to solve it, even though some days it feels terrible. And you're going to have bad days where everything sucks and it feels like nothing can be done. <laughs> yeah. And so what can be done? On a little scale, I do little things to keep myself happy and I find myself feeling bad if I do, like, I don't, I don't feel good when I buy things that I know are going to be pollutants or are going to be problematic when I wash, but that is also a luxury. I'm able to make that decision for myself on a bigger scale. I think the biggest thing anybody can do is have conversations with the people around them because Frankly, like the, I don't think this conversation of climate change is had. If if it was talked about and if it was urgently on everyone's mind, I think we would be in a very different place um, policy-wise. So uh, just talking to your friends and family who might not be as educated about climate change as you, um, I think that goes a long way because me sharing, I've, me sharing a story with you that moves you you have the ability to share that story with X, Y, Z and moves them, you know, a butterfly effect. Um, I think that is something that's very feasible. It doesn't require money. It, it's not something that only advantaged people can do, right? But I feel like a lot of the other solutions like not buying plastic and, and shopping sustainably, it's it's extremely a luxury. And I don't think it should be put on the consumers when these huge corporations are at fault. Um, of course, by having conversations, hopefully, you know, that is reflected in when people cast their votes. Um, voting is a huge thing. And, and looking at people, looking at people who is, who is supported by oil lobbyists, who is backed by people who are anti-green energy, um, looking at all those different things. And also, I think it's super important for me in the Pacific Northwest. I have, as I moved here, I found an incredible amount of resources in support of the Native nations that live here. So the Puyallup tribe holds climate rallies or they have many marches against the LNG facility that's going to be, that's planned to be built. And being active with your voice goes a very long way um, and uplifting voices that need to be heard also go a long way. But those are some of the things that I, I try to do and think about doing. I'm trying to think of some more. Oh, I, I set a fun challenge for myself um, a little bit ago to for a year see if I could still be fashionable if I wasn't buying from fast fashion and I wasn't buying from like non-eco-friendly clothing brands which meant a lot of vintage secondhand clothing and also uh, there are a lot of sustainable businesses out there there's actually a website called good on you I believe that rates them on and gives them an, a sustainability and ethicality score so that's really cool and I didn't get less fashionable. And if anything, I got way more. It was super exciting to put that challenge on myself. Um, I tried to be plastic free before the pandemic started just to see if I could. And that was the hardest thing ever because 
you really see that plastic is everywhere. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to even start with like, I mean, just like little Tupperware, like, like, where are you going to put like leftovers, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just trying to even picture glass, like, glass Tupperware, glass Tupperware. I'm not seeing glass. You, you basically have to think about what did people do before cl- plastic existed? Oh, wow. Because, before we were using single uses, right? Like even makeup was sold in metal tins or whatever. It can be done. I think I think recycling is a huge thing we have to work through. I think going forward, okay, this is this is my um top three on my mind when it comes to combating climate change. First of all, we need to get renewable energy figured out. And it has to be the forefront of our energy because even if we switch to EVs, if we're not using clean energy. There is no benefit, right? Uh, there's the huge pollution in the oceans issue. And if we take it out, what are we going to do with it? We have to figure out how we're going to mass mass consume recycled goods and get that out on the market because we're still producing plastics. Some, I think I was reading, it might not be Coca-Cola, but I don't mind dragging Coca-Cola's name because they've been the number one plastic polluter for so many years in a row, but I think they were planning on like tripling their plastic production. So it's still demanding action and being aware of these issues. But I think recycling is going to be a huge industry, renewable energy. So it was top one is putting the uh, renewable kinds of energy on the forefront. Mm-hmm. Number two is learning how to mass produce the recycling industry that we have so much that's still being produced. And how can we kind of read how do we it. get our recycling rate higher right now it's about nine percent that's nine nine yeah it's <laughs> silly right because we've already <laughs> produced the plastic but it's cheaper to just keep producing more but unfortunately that cost does not account for the environmental impact yes. not the, like gdp so in my environmental economics classes what this is what shocked me the most was that in the Amazon, so the Amazon rainforest could be completely burned down and GDP would not change. But as societies built upon natural resources, obviously the burning of the Amazon rainforest is going to be felt economically. So it's just interesting because while these environmental aspects are not accounted for economically, they are going to impact them whether people like it or not. And all these industries are going to be impacted by climate change. And a lot of the industries, for example, fishing, push back against policies that right now might seem like infringing on their jobs. But in reality, it's it's keeping them, it's preserving them for the long term, right? So in Washington, there's a lot of conversation between scientists, between commercial fishers, between native nations and the general recreational fisher on regulations. And the commercial fishers are seeing that the fish are dying off, right? So in in Friday Harbor, we took a trip down the coast and we saw about eight commercial fishers. And the professor told us, look, like, these fishers are bleeding money because they are spending thousands of dollars a day in fuel in labor costs to send their ships out there and they're coming back empty. 
that is how bad the fishing market is getting salmon salmon is Mm -hmm. in decline so you're seeing how the dams in the rivers which are preventing salmon spawning salmon populations are lowering it's impacting the fishers the orcas are in decline it's impacting the tribal nations that also have fishing businesses that also fish is important to them culturally and again this is this multi-layered multi very connected aspect there's just i think it's just seeing the way like your mind's working and it's burning a million miles per hour because you just have so much information that you just like uh-huh. can spew out it's just it shows how much there is to learn and how things are fully interconnected and it always yeah. i'm seeing like a pattern that it's it's going back towards that cultural practice and that usually there's some practice that is done for a reason that would make certain things more sustainable. Like, like the fish, like the way we are retrieving the fish the way we're using certain like fossil fuels, the way we overfish for commercial benefit has a cost that has a price to it. Um, there's that social cost, right. Yeah. That will impact more people. There's going to be not only just like economically with those big industries that aren't able to keep up anymore. They're still using, as you said, more fuels to even just go out to, to come back with nothing. So again, you're like, it's that cycle of, again, you're using fossil fuels, you're polluting, and then you're also still overfishing and you can't even overfish because certain regions just don't have any more fish there. And I just think running through these different habits and seeing how they are impacting different like areas like the Amazon forest or the Pacific Northwest or the... I think it was Hawaii, you said, right? Yeah. Um, the octopus plant. Like there's all these different regions that were, I think just all the stories that you're saying and all these experiences that you've had and the teachers that have said and taught these things to you just shows that there's so much to be done, but there's also like a lot of awareness that's around it as well. I mean, you know this stuff because you're going to a university, not even that, you just research and you just look up things and you're, you know, I mean, you don't know way too much, but. Yeah, I can't. I can't comprehend all this stuff. I'm, I'm trying to. I don't know about people are listening, but I'm trying to keep up with everything. It's just like I don't even know how you are processing all this. It's crazy. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's it's. I've come a long way. I think like sophomore year of high school, I was like definitely distraught by eco anxiety. I just was sad. I didn't think anything could be done. I didn't think there was a point in even trying to solve it because it was so bad. But mm-hmm. I'm glad I, I, it was that biotech teacher that really inspired me in that moment in Kauai that just changed the game for me. And I really just want to emphasize that the climate crisis is not hopeless. And there are so many brilliant minds all over the world who look so different from each other. We're going to have to work together. We're going to have to collaborate and think through trial and error. Things are going to go wrong as we try and solve the world's biggest problem, but things are also going to go right. Um, And I think we're in a really pivotal place to be making these decisions and figuring out what's going to work and what's not going to work. Yeah. I think balancing that, like, level of eco-anxiety and the way you're just spewing hope. I can feel it. And <laughs> I know more people need that um, when you're reading all these things on the news, but I just think it's interesting to try to balance like spreading awareness 
on this level of ego anxiety and just being real about like how hard it can be just to process all this information and be like really distraught as you were in high school. Um, and it's, it's hard to account for that emotional toll as well. And so I think finding those avenues of hope the way you've done is it's inspirational and it gives me hope. I mean, honestly, I I've known climate change to be a problem. Um, I've done certain research. I had certain classes I took in high school, a little bit in college as well. And like, you learn about it, but I never, maybe this is just me, but I never really like applied myself to the situation. I never really like was real with the situation where I think you were so easily just turned on by this like whole topic that it directly applied to your life. And I think a lot of people, there's like that level of detachment that maybe it's going to happen like this many years later and doesn't really matter. I can't really do anything about it. And I think the way that you just are bringing about it now and that we need to be active now while also balancing like hope with that, it really helps me honestly see differently. And I really hope that people are able to get that as well because it gives me motivation to maybe I'll start using glass Tupperware. I don't know. (laughs) We'll see. I want to end with a quote. Okay. Thunberg, but I also want to kind of see what strategies you even use. Like you were in high school with this uh-huh. level of anxiety and yes, you had someone to inspire you and maybe that took you out of it right away. But were there any like methods particularly that you used? Um, maybe like less social media, maybe you balance a certain time you read research articles. Yeah. Are there things that you you did for self-care um, to balance the emotional toll that comes from this eco-anxiety? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the biggest switch for me was focusing less on the articles that talk about our doom and more on the articles that focus on solutions or somewhere in the world they tried this and it worked. Um, there's so many different articles discussing like positive stories and that really does make a difference in your morale and also recognizing that your ego anxiety is very valid it is terrifying it is a huge huge big looming doomsday problem um, that feels out of a movie and all these generations before us is kind of sitting on our shoulders now as Gen Z and and the coming generations Um, but just know we're all in this together and reach out to your friends, like have the discussion with your friends, because I think talking to people about it really does help. Um, and just like, man, I heard this and it's horrible. And I don't really know if anything can be done about this, but it's easier to take it sitting up. It's easier to take it with friends than it is sitting alone and reading about it and just wanting to cry for hours but (laughs) which is a very real feeling I've definitely been there and I definitely am still there even though I am so filled with hope but yeah and and I think a big reason I am so passionate about the climate is also because of how it unequally affects different peoples Um, And I think climate justice in the face of the pandemic as the Black Lives Matter movement was skyrocketing through the United States. I think I really was like, okay, I am not just passionate about climate change because I love the animals. It's also because we all deserve, we all have the right to live on a healthy planet and we should not be seeing unequal 
we are seeing an equal um, distributions of the impact, but I, I think that is a problem. Um, and so I also think fighting against climate change is, is very depressing, but it's also a fight for climate justice. And it's along the lines of you're fighting a, a system, at least in the United States, so you're fighting a system that was meant to oppress. So it is very dark, but again, reaching out to those friends and reaching out to a community that also thinks the same things is always helpful. I want to quickly make a point that you're talking about like dark stuff and those stories and how different systems are reinfected and your light was off. And then you just turn your light on. Now it's bright. This is hope, true. This right? is what the future looks like. The, right. <laughs> Aisha's room is the future right now. Um, I'm actually curious on what you think. This is the last quote I want to go through or the only quote, but this is like the last thing. So Greta Thunberg, she has like a reputation, at least when I was reading through things that she said to have a lot of negatively worded statements. And it's like, I think the way she's effective is because she's so blunt and she's so straightforward. And I feel like that can be powerful. But as we're talking with like eco-anxiety and how we want to balance that, I want your opinion on how maybe you would reshape this quote. So I'm going to read it real quick for you. Okay. So it's, I often talk to people who say, no, we have to be hopeful and to inspire each other. And we can't tell people too many negative things, but no, we have to tell it like it is, because if there are no positive things to tell, then what should we do? Should we spread false hope? We can't do that. We have to tell the truth. So I feel like that quote contradicts a lot, but I want to kind of see what you take from that message with just the perspective on eco-anxiety that you've put forth. Right. Yeah, well, I think it's important to think about the audience here. So we, or at least I, n- grew up the same way Greta Thunberg was surrounded by climate change, right? So we know the negatives. I think she's talking to a room of politicians who should do do not deserve to not hear the negatives because they have never felt that eco-anxiety. They have never gone through the anxiousness of thinking about the future of our planet. So I think she is completely valid in saying, I'm not going to sit here and speak hope to you because they are a room full of people who can make a change and they're not. And I think I am speaking to a group of people who understand climate change, who, who are in the education system and have seen it, observed it, whatever, but knowing that it can be solved by calling out politicians who are ignoring the issue, I think is very important. So me and Greta like work hand in hand, right? So you have to call out that this is a dire issue. Like it is still a horrible, horrible issue um, with extinction rates, with mass death, with pollution impacting the health of people, with all these different effects but it's also important to think about for me how can we solve those and for politicians they're not even thinking about the issue so how can they be hopeful in thinking about solving them if they haven't even acknowledged the first part so I think that is just the most important aspect that Greta changed the game in calling out politicians and bringing this issue into a lot more global debate after Greta started with her climate marches, you know, that exploded all over the world. 
And now we're at a point where we're discussing here today. Um, We're at a point where maybe you and I both have gone to climate marches and been advocates for this. And that has been inspired by the lovely Greta. And so I think she is totally valid in saying you do not deserve hope because you are not even acknowledging the problem to those politicians. I think like I, I fully support that message. But to you and me, I want you as a human to know that there are things we can do about it, but we have to act. Politicians, they aren't human, right? <laughs> <laughs> They're not uh, human. That, that was, that's a beautiful take. I, I think your perspective is, it, it was perfect. And yeah, working Aisha and Greta hand in hand, two <laughs> most powerful women on the earth. Yes. Um, I just want to thank you for being on. I feel like I learned so much and like I'm friends with you. So I can't even imagine <laughs> what people who don't really know you as well. Um, I can't imagine what they took from this. So just thank you for being on. Honestly, it meant so much to have you. And yeah, it's just you said so many great things. Thank you so much for having me, John, and giving me the ability to talk about this issue. Um, I'm really glad to be able to share my my takes. And yeah, anybody, please DM me. I'd love to talk more about these issues. Yeah, where where can they find you? Learning. Oh, okay. You can find me at Aisha Rashid with three Ds at the end on Instagram or at Aisha by the Ocean, whichever is easiest. And yeah, always, always down for some discussion. So that's up. what we need right we need more more conversation more discussion so go find aisha on social media talk to her she will actually talk to you forever <laughs> real so, talk <laughs> real, real talk. talk well thank you again aisha yes thank you